0: Good morning, welcome to the UK Column Studio. Uh, We've got a nice day in Plymouth, as you'll see from our backdrop of uh, Plymouth Sound. That's always a good uh, place to begin. And we've got an extremely interesting guest today. We're delighted to be joined by Professor Norman Fenton. Um, Professor Fenton is a Professor of Risk at the Queen Mary University of London. And uh, if I just give a little bit of his resume here, he's a mathematician whose current focus is on critical decision making, and in particular on quantifying uncertainty using causal probabilistic models that combine data and knowledge. His areas of work cover health law, forensic security, reliability, and transport safety. Uh, So with that um, introduction, uh, Professor Fenton, welcome to the UK Column Studio. Thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Hi, thanks for, thanks for having me on.
0: You've got a tremendous background. I've just given that little resume there. Um, risk is one of the key areas that you cover. Um, we're going to have a discussion today around COVID-19, but in particular, the BBC's recent documentary, uh, which was hosted by Professor Hannah Fry before we get on to that particular documentary you've been quite outspoken for some time about what's been happening around COVID-19 and the data can I just ask you what's sparked your interest when did you first begin to realize that maybe things that were being said you didn't agree with or you you had reason to doubt the perhaps the accuracy of some of the data
1: We were in. We were onto this quite quite early because I was actually leading. I was a principal investigator of a very large interdisciplinary project, which was looking at improved medical decision making using our kind of like Bayesian causal probabilistic methods to improve diagnostic and prognostic accuracy for chronic medical conditions. And we were looking at things like um, chronic heart disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and diabetes. So I was already working with um, specialist clinicians in different in different areas, and doing risk assess, you know, doing that type of risk assessment where we're already were not just doing classical number crunching, but really looking at um, uh, causal explanations for for data that you were seeing in order to make these improved decisions. So it was kind of inevitable that I'd be drawn into looking at the the COVID data right from the start. And right from the start, what we saw was a problem with the um, the official data that was being presented on case numbers and fatalities right from the start. So, what we we were I think we were the first to publish a peer reviewed paper, which exposed the fact that the while that the infection rate, I the number of people infect, infected worldwide. So this was already in March, April. We were looking at this. We believe we saw was actually. Um, greater than what was being reported. But the infection fatality rate, in other words, the probability that someone infected would die from the disease, we saw right early on that that was being massively exaggerated. It was far far lower than was being reported. And again, we were able to, to do that risk assessment, as it were, by taking account of not just the available public data, but also about the inevitable biases in the way cases and deaths were being reported. And at that time, the limited amount of testing, which was therefore underestimating the people who were basically having the, having, who had the virus, but it was fairly harmless to them. So we published that, that paper. And that wasn't, it wasn't considered especially controversial at the time, say, because we got it, we got it published. We even had a few others published shortly after that. But it was exposing, it did expose straight away that this key problem, that you know the the, the you know that the the danger of the the danger of COVID was being exaggerated, right? And that it was you know the eye because at that point people were just assuming that if you got COVID, you know there's a good chance you're going to die. That's what was being widely believed, and we, we 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 proved that that wasn't the case. Later on, you know it seemed to be we were looking at. The way that when they started to introduce kind of like mass testing of asymptomatic people in the in sort of after the lockdown, more sort of late summer September 2020, we could see that there was this um, supposed exponential growth in in, in cases, which was going to lead, of course, to the second lockdown. But it was all being driven by by essentially, you know, the testing program. The more you tested, the more you know, the more cases you're going to find. And what, we were look, what we were seeing was actually the, the, the proportion of people testing positive wasn't really going up much, right? And therefore the government data in not showing, you know, not in, in just giving the case numbers, and of course case numbers totally determine hospitalization numbers and death numbers, because hospitalizations, a case is defined by someone who's test positive, a PCR test, and a, and a hospitalization is, is defined as somebody who was positive on a PCR test within 14 days of hospitalization or during hospitalization, irrespective of what they were hospitalized for, right? So you're getting the inflated numbers there. And the same with deaths. Anybody who died within 28 days of a positive PCR test is classified as COVID death. So everything is being driven by this you know, a positive PCR test. And if you're testing lots of asymptomatic people, which we were, I mean, we know that if an asymptomatic person tests positive, it's very unlikely they've got the disease and it's very unlikely they're gonna get symptoms of it either, right? So these, to all intents and purposes, false positive. It's it's different for people who've got significant symptoms, but there was mass testing of asymptomatics and hence this mass inflation, mass exaggeration of case numbers, hospitalization, and death numbers. And, And pointing these things out, even just pointing out the fact, hey, shouldn't you simply divide, at least look at, look at divide in number of cases by the number of tests. The act of simple division was considered to be a kind of a, a heinous act of misinformation.
0: Professor Fenton, when, when, when your paper went out con- containing this material, did, did that actually come out as a, as a paper from Queen Mary University itself? How, how did that paper come into the scientific so, world?
1: So we had, I think it was three or four papers published before we started to point out these problems with the the PCR testing and how it was inflating the numbers. When we started to, so they the, the original first ones were published in peer-reviewed journals, you know, in, in the Risk journal and, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, rep- highly reputable journals. But once we started to do this work, highlighting the problems with the with pcr cases driving the narrative in a way which wasn't properly representative the papers um were no longer being accepted by it they they didn't even get reviewed it. they weren't even being reviewed because that was already considered to be misinformation at this point there was already this campaign to stop any narrative which countered the so-called official world health organization advice and uh, and rules as it were and there was a campaign to to even stop, you know, it it never even got to review stage. We were submitting stuff to things like British Medical Journal and Lancet, you know, journals like that, as well as sort of lower rank journals. And they were rejecting it without review with comments like, this is outside of the scope or it's not of sufficient interest we were getting. What made it even more ridiculous was that we started to put stuff up on preprint servers in the name of, you know, without Queen Mary affiliation. So some stuff got up there, but then afterwards, even the preprint servers, which are supposed to accept down anything which is within scope, even they were not allowing our papers to go up. And so in the end, we just started to put everything on a uh, a website called uh, ResearchGate, which doesn't have any you know doesn't have any screening process. Like because apparently, let's say these preprint servers have this screening process where they're looking. They're now looking for people who are let's say associated with a counter narrative to the WHO. And so you're getting screened out simply because of who you are, right? Or if there's key words in there, at least ResearchGate, you know, we published that. And, you know, interesting enough, we get massive numbers of downloads there. We've had like, you know, for I think the first, um, our first, one of our paper, which revealed the the, where the data, the government's data on vaccine, safety and efficacy was flawed that had well over that's had well over 600,000 downloads
0: right we we've we've in no time at all we've jumped right into the deep end here because the subject is covid-19 we're talking about people who've been very seriously ill and recovered we are talking about some people who've died we're talking about people uh millions of people who've had vaccinations, some of whom have unfortunately suffered adverse uh, reactions. So this is an incredibly serious subject. And yet you have stood up with other professionals, highly qualified professionals, in order to say that uh, data being prepared by the government, presented by the government, and ultimately by the ONS, um, there are questions to be asked, let's put it in diplomatic language, but what have you experienced that your questions have been stonewalled effectively? This this immediately says, well, it, it gets us to ask the question, what is happening when the government itself does not want to hear professionals who are asking Pertinent questions about matters to do with health and safety for the public.
1: It's a serious problem, but th- th- there's an interesting angle to this because this whole thing about the Office of National Statistics data and how it, differ- th- it differs significantly from the, the other government agency, which is also providing COVID data, particularly in relation to vaccinations, because you've got the UKHSA, which is the UK Health Security Agency, which used to be Public Health England. They use the so-called NIMS database, which is the National Immunisation Management Service database. Whereas the Office for National Statistics use a somewhat biased sample of, of England residents. And the interesting enough, the UKHSA, for example, has a completely different estimate. And this is critical of the proportion of people who are unvaccinated. They estimate about twenty percent of adults. In the UK are unvaccinated, whereas the Office for National Statistics estimates um, a ridiculous figure of, of 8%, right? Which was actually a key figure used in that in the BBC uh, unvaccinated documentary. Now, the thing is that for some reason, you know, the the um, the message has got out that the ONS data. Is the one which is sort of more reliable. People say, "Oh, you can discount NIMs because it 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 for start overcounts the population size, which it does. It double because it, there's a lot of double counting in there, because not just the double counting of people vaccinated, but because it counts a lot of non-residents who go to GP services or attend the hospital, whatever. So you've got this definitely inflated population figure, but there's actually no evidence that it that it overestimates the number of people who are unvaccinated. In fact, we believe it actually actually underestimates the proportion of unvaccinated. We think it could be even higher than 20%. Now, the interesting thing about the ONS is that initially, when we started to point out the fact that their data was clearly flawed, and if you've got that type of bias in 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 the estimate of the number unvaccinated, then any data that you're putting out which is claimed, which claims to show the vaccine is, you know, its safety and effectiveness. If you're if you're underestimate the portion of unvaccinated, then it completely skews that data in favour of the vaccine being safe and effective. So it's a it really is a critical point. Now, initially, we were close. We, in fact, we were the first. We, it was as a result of our freedom of information request and discussions with the with people at the Office for National Statistics who were dealing with the vaccine surveillance data, that they started to put out some better information than they did before. So it was because of us, they started to put out the age, age-related information, which without which everything was confounded. You couldn't really make any strong conclusions. But they didn't, do it, they didn't do enough of it. So we kept probing more and more. We had several discussions. We had Zoom meetings with the key people there. And it was quite polite. But they weren't, and, and they did, you know, make some responses. But when, ultimately, when they were really challenged about, you know, the major flaws in this data, they came out with some ridiculous, you know, ridiculous excuse. They blamed the so-called, ah, uh, this healthy, when we, you know, they said the flaws were actually not flaws. It was just, there's this healthy vaccine effect, which is causing these apparently bizarre results. And since then, they've gone like quiet. I actually question their most recent report. I, I actually... Demonstrated why there was an why obviously couldn't be true, why, got, why their data was obviously flawed, right? And they haven't responded, they haven't responded to that.
0: Okay. Um, I, I'm shaking my head already because I, there, is, there are so many different avenues to go down. Um, I'm going to bring Debbie Evans in uh, uh, shortly, just before I do that. Um, what I'm thinking is that the ONS is an organisation that the UK column has dealt with over many years. There's been a number of subjects the, where they've produced data, and we've had reason to ring them up and actually speak to their staff. Usually that, that's uh, been Mike Robinson from the UK uh, column. And over the years, they've been extremely good. They've been very responsive. They've uh, They've If we've asked a difficult question, they say, we'll go away and look at it. We'll come back with the information. And in general, they were as good as gold. They did that. And you felt that you were dealing with a government department that was professional. They clearly valued the job they were doing and they, they produced some good material. We saw that attitude change once COVID came along we yeah. saw that there was a deep reluctance to respond and answer questions and almost coldness a wall went up and this this is very very interesting because why has this happened is it a change of personnel is it pressure from the government and then you have to go the next step and say since this whole affair concerns the lives and health of the of the nation why would they get defensive about data particularly if a mistake had been made and that would impact badly on the safety aspect of the nation's health. So I'm I'm just gonna say to you, we as a small organization have experienced the change in the way that ONS has responded and we felt it was significant. But I'd also like to just say that you've just described how you started to see things which you didn't agree with. We are, of course, nowhere near qualified as you are to to look at this material, but there were certain things to do with the data and statistics, particularly around the number of cases and the deaths, which led to the UK column questioning. And as time went on, it became obvious to us that the data being pushed out simply did not make sense. And so ultimately we we, we have reported on that, and uh, even to the extent of, Producing a searchable database for the MHRA uh, yellow card adverse effect data, which has been which has been very valuable to some people. But I'm just saying that from a almost a layperson's point of view, there was definitely a change in the behaviour of the ONs, and I think it's significant. The other thing I'd just like to reinforce is that very quickly you've taught, you've used the expression bias you've talked about skewing of data. Um, Now, these are very important things because you could say data gets skewed from time to time because of a particular scientific bias, but if it's data being skewed in order to um, hide actual effects from the public, this is extremely dangerous, dangerous stuff. And hand in hand with the creation of the data, we also had the efforts of the government's SPY-B team, which was the group of scientists alongside the SAGE, the principal scientific group advising on COVID-19. And the minutes of the SPY-B meeting uh, demonstrated that they were prepared to use applied psychology in order to change the way people thought and behaved around the COVID um, so-called pandemic itself. And this included increasing the fear factor on individuals. So the I'm going to call it the ponds that we're in is not simply a statistical pond because we've got a government that's demonstrated it is prepared to use applied behavioral psychology to influence how people react to its own data.
1: Yeah I mean that that's absolutely true. I mean yeah project fear as you said it was all it was all minuted that they 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 deliberately exaggerated the the danger of the virus. And look look what we're now finding out from in, from the US you had this admission from Deborah Burks last week you know who was essentially in charge with Anthony Fauci of the of the whole sort of covid response actually admitting that they knew that the vaccines you know wouldn't stop transmission. They knew that in advance and yet in lockstep with every all of the other governments world, they announced that this this idea that that the the, the vaccine stop you know tran, transmission stops with the vaccine. You know anybody who's vaccinated cannot being sorry cannot become infected, uh, and cannot transmit it. So sorry, they they said it was you know she has admitted they knew it couldn't stop, it wouldn't stop infections, and yet that the message they gave was the exact opposite, and they accuse the other side, you know, of misinformation. So they they you know that fits into the same thing that you're saying about spying. They they knew, you know, they were they knew they were deliberately, massively exaggerating their particular point. And 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 you know, so initially with the danger of the virus and now with the efficacy, you know, more recently with the efficacy of vaccines. So it was a clear, it was, it was, it was, you know, a manufactured deliberately manufactured way to um, bias the narrative.
0: Right. Okay. I'll just bring um, Debbie Evans in. Uh, Debbie, thank you for joining us today. In fact, thank you for setting up this interview today because uh, you're the person who got in, in touch with um, Professor Fenton. Well, I'm go- Debbie, I'm going to ask you the same question. What got you suspicious in the beginning? Because is, this is a question I've never asked you before. We've had all the conversations we have had together about COVID-19 and the policy and the lockdowns. But I, I've never asked you before, what got you started with beginning to question the official narrative?
2: Uh, well, actually, Brian, it was my son. Um, I bought into it at first. Uh, I actually believed it. Um, and I, I bought my gloves and I bought my disinfectant and, and my hand sanitizer. And then um, my son, who was wanting to go out and see his friends, you know, he's in his mid-20s, um, I was I was getting paranoid and I didn't want him to go out. And he said, but mum, why are you frightened of something when, 90, I think that at the time, the percentage was 99.7% of people recover from COVID-19. Why why are you frightened of something with such a good recovery rate? And it was just like a light bulb moment in my head. And from there on in, I started to to look at the data and to think this this isn't this isn't making any sense. And in my nursing career, everything that was happening within the NHS and and procedures like the PCR tests, none of it made any sense. So that's what that's what started me. But originally it
0: was my son okay well I'm, <laughs> I'm fascinated by that and well done for following through well done for your son to actually coming up with the, uh, the information and getting you started and what a journey it's been since then because you are somebody who has absolutely stayed on the um, coattails of the MHRA to ask them about their data and their safety data or we would say the lack of it and of course, um, you've been consistently stonewalled yourself. Do, do you want to just add a little bit about um, your interaction with the MHRA to date?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, so much of what Professor Fenton has said, uh, there are so many red flags there. There's so much to unpack in what he said. But interestingly, you know, as the government have exaggerated So much of their data, as as Professor Fenton's just said, you know, we've been exaggerating the data and the data is flawed. But then on the flip side, someone like the MHRA have seemed to be ignoring their data. You know, currently their data is showing 450,000 reports of serious adverse reactions, but they're completely ignoring it. So if they're not exaggerating it on one, one side, they're ignoring it on the next so i think my big question would be how reliable is the mhra data obviously not reliable at all and um comparing that to the vares data it would seem to be complete what, we may just as well not take any notice of the mhra data but what's worrying about it is that they're not acknowledging it and as the days go on the cases are going on and they're stonewalling us we're asking them questions that everybody needs answered and they're refusing to answer anything now so they're not responding to politicians they're not responding to freedom of informations they're not responding to their complaints via their complaint system i've had to go through the information commissioner's office i haven't heard anything from the information commissioner's offices yet and they're stonewalling everybody so are we to to presume that the mhra is data is completely worthless.
0: Well, that's that's a very good question. We're we're obviously um, heading towards the uh, the BBC um, doc- documentary, and um, <laughs> key to that is that many people in the country have not been vaccinated because they've decided the vaccines inappropriate. Some of them have done their research and are concerned about the recorded adverse reactions. Um, Some people just feel a sense of suspicion, but it's only right that if people are going to make an informed choice about a vaccine, they should be able to get the real information, real accurate information about benefits and risks. And it's been the risk side of the vaccinations that has has gone into this black hole where it's so difficult to pin down the MHRA. If I can come back to uh, Professor Fenton, We have pushed really hard for the MHRA to declare its hand over its own data. And the key bit for us has been to ask them, well, OK, you've recorded these uh, adverse effects. You qualify them by saying, until there's further analysis, we can't say that each one of the recorded adverse effects is actually caused by the vaccine. And that seems to me a very logical starting point. But you would then expect that the MHRA would go on and conduct a proper mathematical, statistical analysis, medical analysis of the data it's collected in order to produce a definitive statement of how many of their one and a half million recorded adverse effects are actually as a result of the vaccination. But they don't want to do this. What is your reaction to this, uh, Professor Fenton, what's your reaction to this situation? Yeah,
1: it's what we're seeing here, it's what we're seeing in the US as well, that it, as you said, it, it, it might seem reasonable on face value to assume that just because, you know, there is an adverse reaction after vaccination, you, of course you can't causally, necessarily causally link that to the vaccination. So from a, from a risk perspective, a statistical perspective, you should be looking at the obvious safety signals like the differences in the number of adverse reactions, the proportion of adverse reactions per dose for this vaccine compared with previous vaccines, and also the, the uh, distribution of types of, of adverse reactions being reported. And as soon as you start looking at that, it of course becomes clear that there is a real problem that needs to be investigated. It becomes clear that you can't simply disregard. You know all of these uh, re- reported adverse reactions as being coincidental, which incidentally was the the implication of the of the BBC Top Two documentary, which I think was particularly was particularly insulting, especially of course to those who were vaccine injured. So you mentioned about the yellow card system, which I found. I mean, I had to report. You know, for my wife I've had to report uh, an adverse reaction from. AstraZeneca, and it's, it's an appalling system, and they don't get the right, you, you, they don't collect right details, you don't get any feedback, it's, it, it's useless. I think that the, the U.S. VAAS system is better, and, and the data from that is actually pretty astonishing, right, because what you've got is that, as of, I think, the most recent, um, the most recent report was the 8th of July, there were almost 1.4 million COVID adverse reactions reported, of which there was almost 30,000 deaths, Now, in all 32 years of VARS reporting, a total of less than 10,000 deaths have been recorded for all other vaccines combined. And anybody who says, ah, yeah, but there there was not so many doses, no, 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 when you look at it per dose, you've got this incredible, incredible explosion of incredible increase in numbers of deaths and adverse reactions for this vaccine per dose than any other vaccine right it's not it's you know, it's, it's completely in, incomparable and from a risk perspective from a probabilistic perspective that's where you need to start you, it means that you cannot disregard you you've got to accept that there is a clear and an overwhelming safety signal with these vaccines
0: you've used the the key term there the 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 signal which uh mhra is is continually using that word we are looking with respect to pharma uh, co-vigilance we're looking for these uh, safety signals in order to be able to reassure the the public that uh, the vaccines are safe this this is a mantra which they say time and time again i am yet to understand what those safety signals are that they are looking for as part of my question or part of my statement and the second bit is that if you're getting a signal about something then the next step is you have to do something and we um homed in on the fact that well we have david scott who's 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 one of the presenters with the uk column he's a, a chartered engineer by profession and he quickly said well of course what we should be able to see is a quantitative risk analysis of their adverse reaction data. What what have they actually done to analyse the risk from that data? Now, I'd like to throw that straight back at you because you are the expert on risk analysis. What, What would you expect the MHRA to have done having got signals?
1: Well, they would have done comparisons, like I mentioned, with the rates of the reactions compared with previous vaccines. They would have, they should have been. I mean, take the example of something like, I mean, have they? I don't, I'm not aware they've even made any statements about the increased risk of myocarditis and other heart conditions in, for example, young males, where it's way more than the safety signal. It's, it's, it's indisputable. In fact, the, you know you, you you can very clearly um, calculate the increased risk over any possible benefit to, to young males in taking, to, to, to young fit males in taking the vaccine. And the results of that should have been an immediate withdrawal. You know, there should have been unquestionably, uh, there was sufficient data there to, to, to assert that, 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 you know, these people should, you know, young fit males should absolutely not be taking this vaccine under any circumstances. And similarly, similarly with, with, with children. I mean, you know, there, there is, again, enough, there is enough already there to, to, to demand the withdrawal of the vaccine for, for, for children.
0: Debbie, if I can bring you in straight away, because you, you've directly challenged the MHRA on some of this. And, and uh, one of the uh, things that you discovered is that the MHRA was prepared to admit it had mistakes in its own data. I think that was in relation to babies, if I remember correctly
2: yes it was it was one week i saw the um i was look, looking through all of their sheets which were ever growing every single week and i noticed um anencephalic baby um and neural tube defects which immediately alarmed me so i i wrote to dame june rain directly to ask what what this data was actually telling us is it were these babies that were born um as a result of a pe- of a mother having a vaccine, was there any forensic investigations that were going into this? Because we must remember that after thalidomide, it, there were 500 cases of thalidomide and, the, ca- and, and the, the drug was withdrawn. So I wanted to know from Dame June Rain if this data was accurate. And it was, re- it was um, the AstraZeneca jab. And they wrote to me back, it took a long time, three and a half months, before they actually put it in writing, that they would made a mistake, so was wrong. So, I mean, they said that I you can't be sure that any of their data is correct at all, because they quite clearly, they must be manually inputting it, even though they say they're using AI. If they're making those kinds of mistakes, it must be manually inputted for there to be those mistakes made. So th- those entries were withdrawn.
0: And Debbie, just um the other thing which has come into my mind is just just reinforce. We 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 had um June Rain um talking at a meeting, I think it was one of their board meetings, and she said, Oh, we expected about a hundred thousand adverse reactions. Well, of course, we're we're now over one and a half million, and that is connected to somewhere over four hundred thousand cases, but it... From what you've seen, it's clear that the statement that they employed millions of pounds to ins- install a, an AI system to help the handle the data, this this just doesn't appear to be true based on the, I'm going to use the word chaos, around their own data.
2: No, I mean, I've, I've watched many interviews with Dame June Rain, all of the MHRA board meetings, and. The video that you're referring to was the homage to Sir Alastair Breckenridge, I believe, uh, where June Rain said that they were expecting one hundred thousand serious adverse reactions, but had actually now were in receipt of over four hundred thousand. But they simply didn't have enough scientists and researchers to be able to check each and every report. So basically, my question to her at a board meeting straight after was if you were expecting 100,000 serious adverse reactions, what mechanism have you put in place to help those people that will experience those serious adverse reactions? And clearly, nothing's put in place. And you know, something very quickly I'd like to add, because Professor Fenton mentioned the WHO, um, and, and you also mentioned, Brian, behavioral science. And yesterday, I think it was, it was announced that Susan Mickey, Professor Susan Mickey, who's head of our behavioral science bit the bit team um, and SAGE, um, she was appointed to the board um, on behavioral sciences for the WHO yesterday. And I find this, um, we know that Professor Susan Mickey is a lifelong member of the Communist Party. So I find this very worrying um, step forward that we've now got. Professor Susan Mickey directly on the board of the WHO.
0: Okay, that's that's very interesting. Um, just to just come back to the subject of um, data, uh, Professor Fenton, for a public who might not have any understanding of, of, of the handling of large um, amounts of data, what do you see as the key differences between the way that the MHRA handles data with the yellow card and the American VAERS system, which you've mentioned? You, you, you're indicating that you think the VAERS system is better. Why do you consider it better than the MHRA system?
1: Well, for a start, from personal experience, it's actually very hard to actually even make an entry into yellow card. hard. Huh? Um, I mean, it's not that easy to do it in in there. But I, I found it, you know, I, I, you know I'm you know, a mathematician. I work in the computer science department. Um, even I, I found it very challenging just to simply, you know, get through that, just to enter, put my entry into the yellow card uh, system. And it's the the you know the the information that they're getting doesn't seem doesn't seem to be appropriate to be able to do the type of intelligent ai analysis that as Debbie said that was supposed to be able to be done with the data so um i mean it, i mean it's always it's it's interesting I mean, that that the idea that they as you said that they already you know were, i remember when they put out to tender this you know contract for for you know for the ai analysis of so this expected enormous number of um adverse you know reactions which are going to be reported i mean that itself was a very, very concerning. They, so they already, you know, they already knew there was going to be a lot of these, and the system, it, it is not fit; doesn't seem to be fit for purpose either in the data that they collect, or the way that they're actually doing any of the AI analysis. So, yeah, I, I think that the the difference, I mean, VERS has much more, you know, much more specific um information into different, you know, into different fields of the database, which enables more intelligent analysis to be done. That's the difference you've got. It's just, it's, it's a very, very poorly designed interface and database in the yellow card compared with theirs.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Um, I can just add that the, the UK column attempted to get round the difficulties of accessing the MHRA yellow card data by building a very um, simple i'm going to say search engine so on our website at the moment people can at least go and search for various medical conditions and come up with the data and that is the the proper uh, data from the mhra but they put their data out in updated sheets which constantly meant that you couldn't really see the overall picture certainly as a layperson. But uh, I do know that the, uh, that the American VAERS system, um, hundreds of thousands, millions of lines of data, including quite a significant amount of data of the exact medical circumstances around the particular incident taking place. So you could, you saw the uh, the sex of the person their age, but you could also see the setting in which the report of the adverse effect had been made and many of those uh, points were highlighted by a really excellent um, biostatistician a French lady Christine Cotton Uh, apologies Christine uh, surname went out of my head there but she did a lot of work on the VAERS data but interestingly enough she also said as a biostatistician that in her opinion and she had the uh, professional knowledge and experience to make the statement it was simply not possible for the, for the vaccine manufacturers to produce a product where all the safety checks had been met in the times available to them. So that, that was uh, quite an interesting piece of work uh, that she did. Perhaps it's time to move on to the BBC, because of course the BBC has, uh, has been tackling people from the outset with the fear factor of how many people were going to die information in particular coming out of imperial college was overwhelmingly about death and how many people were going to die as a result of this pandemic so the mindset of the public in uk from the earliest stages i think was to be put in a in a state of fear and then of course the government's lockdown and its its ultimately its vaccination policy was 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 unleashed into that fearful public community now the bbc of course was was following the government line at every opportunity i don't know whether you'd like to comment in general terms about how you see the bbc just before we move on to talking about the documentary itself
1: well i mean the, the thing is that um the official narrative which is you know promoted by let's say you know the I'll call it the sort of the globalist elites such as the BBC just happens now also to be you know the the same narrative of, of the liberal elites who dominate the governments of more or less every you know first world nation that's why you had this sort of lockstop you know uh, approach now they they all you know they i mean that the, as you mentioned that you know they started with the the imperial um uh, report and and on the basis of that you know everyone you know of course, China was promoting lockdowns before, but on Neil Ferguson's uh, own admission, he never thought they could get away with it in in, in the UK. But but they but um, they didn't, and, and because of that, everybody else did it. Everybody else in the world. So it's it's incredible, and that you know that's that that's been going on. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you. I mean, I can comment on my own experience. You know, on my in in the context of you know the. The, the documentary. I can comment on my own experiences because I, I also. Um, I people may not know this, but I I, I actually co-presented uh, a document a BBC documentary, a ninety-minute one, with Hannah Fry and also David Spiegelhalter in two thousand and fifteen on, on on it was it was climate change by numbers. So I've got I've got some real, real insights into how they you know into what happens.
0: Right. Well, that that's a really good introduction. So, take us into the documentary itself. What 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 are your thoughts about it, and why do you have concerns about what the BBC did in this documentary, hosted oh, by Anna I mean, Fry? I've
1: got any number of. Uh, I mean, of course, the documentary was completely biased it started with the you know the narrative that there's this tiny fringe minority of almost kind of like nutters it was trying to portray them who were resistant to you know to the science which is saying that you've got to be vaccinated so it started with an inappropriate narrative a that, that this was a tiny fringe minority because it was not eight percent but as we've as i said it's more likely uh to be like uh 20 well over 20 percent um and they're not or ill-informed, I mean, the program itself had some, you know, that's uh, some of the participants were actually very well-informed, right? But actually there, the information they had and, and the data that they came with was not actually, was all edited out of the program, because I've been called, spoken with, um, you know, some of the participants, including Nazarin and, and Vicky, who were quite, let's say, um, vocal in their views, but the concerns that they had, and which they'd actually very well-researched, were not dealt with. It in the program and you know we have the ridiculous also um the bias of the experts i mean we've got the um you know two of the experts um just you know just look into the sort of the the um details you had this um professor adam uh just want to get the details don't forget what the um
2: adam finn
1: Yes, yeah, so you got Adam Finn and um, uh, Asma Khalil. Uh, uh, they did not declare either to the partic- the BBC. So I'm not blaming. I'm not blaming Adam Finn or Asma Khalil here. Let me get that clear. I'm blaming the BBC for not revealing to either the participants or, more importantly, to the watching public, the clear conflict of interest of these two experts. So Professor Adam Finn, Bristol University, he was chosen you know, to explain what the vaccines were and why they were safe, but he is the leader of the Pfizer Center of Excellence for Epidemiology of vaccine Preventable Diseases. And that was set up just in May 2021 with a 4.6 million investment from Pfizer. And he even implied in the program that he was kind of like independent because he was like comparing uh AstraZeneca, the UK company, which said wasn't you know for, for profit, with the, the US companies, Pfizer and Moderna. And he was saying about the US, those US companies. He said his exact words were he acted as a, a buffer between them and the public, which of course is a ridiculous, ridiculous assertion, right? And then you've got say Asma Khalil, she was the expert, you know, chosen to explain why it was important for pregnant women to get the vaccination. But she is the principal investigator of the Pfizer COVID vaccination in pregnancy trial so you know you had these r- ridiculous conflicts of interest um you had them making making very very let's say statements which which should which which i would argue are false and certainly should have should you know shouldn't have gone unchallenged you had adam finn claiming that people you know had stronger immunity from the vaccination than from having been infected which is you know many studies show is nonsense and you had Asma Khalil claiming that the vaccination was not only completely safe, you know, for pregnant women, but actually reduced, you know, had benefits. It was reducing the risk of miscarriage by 15%, you know, she said, which again, you know, is contradicted by by many other studies. You had this ridiculous jelly beans game, which was kind of like dehumanizing, not only dehumanizing victims of adverse reaction, but using flawed statistics to ex- again exaggerate, to, to, to unmassively underestimate the risk of, of serious adverse reactions. There was no discussion about the failure of the vaccine to stop invec- infection or transmission, no mention of you know, the true risk of COVID based on you know, extensive worldwide data, the fact that you know, for people who don't have, except for those with multiple comorbidities, who aren't given appropriate early treatment, you know COVID po- poses very little risk of hospitalization and death. And for young people, yeah it's essentially zero risk of dying you know dying from covid so um you know there was looks yeah, you know, so many other things that I could talk about, but that gives you a you know failure to mention as say the, the kind of data on that we've already discussed here you know from the yellow card and fares you know all of that all of that was missing very very so it's it an incredibly biased it's also very very patronizing the way it was treating the the participants and 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 anybody you know who who was 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 hesitant, and they brought you know. Then you had the sort of the pièce de résistance. They bring in uh, the guy from Full Fact, you know, who, you know, uh, you know, who are funded by you know the same people, sort of Google and uh, you know and, and Facebook, whose whose role is to censor essentially anybody who is contradicting the World Health Organization message on 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 COVID and the vaccines.
0: Uh, well, Professor Fenton, I need to need to come in on that one straight away, because um, uh, UK Column had its whole YouTube channel taken down after we had a lady called Nicola giving us testimony in the very early days of very severe vaccine adverse reactions, yeah. Guy Barret syndrome, her husband ended up paralyzed mm-hmm. from the neck down. Uh, in hospital, in a ward where there were other people with similar conditions diagnosed. Um, we we allowed her to give us an audio statement as to what had happened to her husband and how things were progressing. So that was entirely first-hand and, I'm going to say, expert testimony. She was the, the lady present. And um, YouTube took our whole YouTube channel down for that particular. And what happened several months later, the Daily Mail amongst other new newspapers featured that particular case saying everything that we had said and their their data clearly stayed up in the public domain. And then we end up where, um, tragically, the gentleman um, is, is forced to, um, to get compensation for the injuries that he suffered and then it was then reported in local newspapers but when we put the information forward as as a uh, new media as we like to call ourselves we had the whole channel taken down but um, you you've actually got an extremely good article on your website if people want to have a look for themselves that's www.normanfenton.com so it's very easy to find um, this is a critique of the BBC Two documentary "Unvaccinated," and if I may, I thought I'd just read out a few of the uh, the bullet headlines that you've got because this really, for me, rams home uh, the number of things that were really wrong with the documentary. So you've you've covered the failure to disclose the sorry to disclose the Pfizer links of the two key experts. Um, The failure to disclose the background of fullfact.org. No challenge to the many explicit false claims made. Uh, You've mentioned the jelly beans game. Um, No mention of the failure of the vaccination to stop infection or transmission of COVID. Huge amount to discuss around this, as you indicated earlier in in the interview today. Failure to humanise any actual vaccination victim. So, Nobody brought forward to say, well, I've suffered this. Those were all pushed to one side. Ludicrous and misleading MMR vaccination anecdote. Uh, No challenge to the powerful claim that 20 out of 21 ICU patients at St George's Hospital in December 2021 were vaccinated. Failure to mention reported data on adverse reactions. No mention of the true risk of COVID based on worldwide data no mention of the way COVID data are defined sorry are by definition fixed to exaggerate case numbers hospitalization deaths as well as vaccine efficacy and safety no mention of lack of long-term safety data Um, no mention of the protocol violations now known in the main Pfizer trial no mention of the international data showing strong evidence the vaccine is neither effective nor safe and um, you also then asked some questions about hannah fry's involvement in the the statistics and the maths modeling so this is a very comprehensive analysis that you've put up and the bbc in my opinion should be forced to answer each, each and every point have you been able to have any direct interaction with the bbc with with these particular areas that you're challenging them on
1: so i've sent i uh, put in a formal um complaint with the with the details from the, from that website article and so i'm 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 waiting to hear i mean i haven't put it into ofcom i put it into the bbc complaints department first of all so you know uh, let's see what happens but i mean may, maybe it's sort of the opportune um point i know that Debbie was wanting to to ask about this about this whole idea of you know you know the BBC's idea of the sort of who are the sort of the trusted messengers for for this type of for this type of documentary. And as I mentioned, it's interesting that um, I as I said I I I co-presented a documentary for the BBC with Hannah Fry and, and David Spiegelhorter. And those two certainly are probably the two, maybe the only two trusted messengers on kind of like mathematical mathematics probability and risk. Right, so they are the face, you know, the face of the nation, effectively on on, on messaging about about sort of these types of um, mathematical uh, statistical issues. And the interesting thing is that that was, I believe, that was Hannah Fry's when I did the documentary in two thousand fifteen. I think that was Hannah Fry's first main BBC role, and David Spiegelholder, He he made many appearances appearances before that, but I think it was his first full role as a presenter. But the, the key thing is the BBC actually invested quite a lot of time in training us for these presenter roles. And that particular documentary I was involved in pushed the standard BBC climate change narrative. And the key thing is everything we said that was made, that made the final edit was totally scripted with input from supposed, in that case, exo experts who were sort of climate scientists, because we weren't climate scientists, where mathematicians talking about the, you know, the numerical, the statistical issues, but we weren't climate scientists. Now, I was actually uncomfortable with a lot of the stuff I had to say. And when I subsequently discovered that some of the experts had supplied statements that, let's just say, were not exactly accurate, I made a complaint. I formally complained to the BBC. Um, Of course, Hannah, and David Spiegelhalter were, they're kind of like very much sort of bought into this sort of BBC elitist narrative, whereas maybe I wasn't. Uh, I'm sure they didn't complain about, you know, the scripts they were given, but I did. It is interesting to note that they've gone on to quite sort of stellar careers with the BBC, and I've never been invited back on.
0: Uh, That could be very telling indeed. I'll just bring Debbie in because, well, both of you have spoken to the um to people who participated in the documentary but debbie in the conversations that you've had no need to mention names unless you think it's appropriate but what what sort of criticism did they have of the documentary having gone through the whole process
2: they were saying that um they at first uh, one one participant has said to me that they were told they couldn't leave the house um, they had to, the house was uh, quite remote, away from any other homes or, or villages, and they were told they couldn't leave. Um, I'm glad to say that some of them did, and they were allowed to, but they had to walk quite a long way to get to a pub or to where they wanted to go, a shop. They were also told they weren't allowed to drink and that they had to be um, catered for. So they were they felt very much controlled. They felt as though that all of their information that they were wanting to get out wasn't wasn't shown and wasn't screened. And in fact, it's very interesting to read from Professor Fenton's uh, critique there that um, you know the updated part at the bottom with one of the participants who did do who did take part in some of these games that Hannah Fry was 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 throwing out. With involving dog food chocolates and dog dog food tins, they did participate, and yet all of that was edited out. So what was the point? But they felt as though I, I think there was a division in the group. And I think when Professor Fenton said that there were two that were maybe more outspoken than the others, I think that's true. I I I I watched Professor Hannah Fry almost enjoy watching the division that was going on within the house and I felt that they were manipulating and using that to their advantage, but watching Hannah Fry, it's very interesting um, actually Professor Fenton because I'd I'd ask what your experiences were when you did the documentary with her because I'm seeing from from just a lay member of the public, the style that she uses is to tell stories to try to bring the public with her, so to use these kinds of analogies like jelly beans and and to almost talk in pictures, and as I, I mean, I'm I'm worried as a nurse that people are starting to mistrust nurses and mistrust doctors and mistrust scientific advice. Full stop. And I wonder how much damage that is doing to your profession as well as a mathematician. So I think the upshot of my question is, is what do you think of the style that she uses to to inform people of mathematics and mathematical models?
1: Well, interesting enough, actually following your email to me about, which was actually pointing some of Hannah's sort of older videos, in those older videos, I mean, she she I think she's got a very good presentation style, right? And and I think that she does use, and, and in, in her older videos, I think she uses uh, analogies, you know, tries to use simple analogies and, and does them very well. I mean, she did, um, you know, she introduces um, things like, you know, football tactics as, as an analogy for sort of complex systems and, and that sort of stuff. So I don't have any problem with that, but um, these... These particularly oversimplistic analogies of the sort that she's maybe been using in more recent
0: documentaries
1: and which to a certain extent were also in the climate change one that we did. these are all scripted by the BBC. These, these were not. I mean, okay, maybe if Hannah wants to come on and say that you know that these are all her ideas, then I, 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 you know then, then I'm happy for her to put me right. But based on my, my you know, the personal experience on that program and, and uh, you know, in which she was involved, all, we were given, these are all scripted by, by the BBC. The BBC are the ones especially, let's say, responsible for attempt, you know, they believe that, that people are really stupid and can't understand complex ideas and that, or that they can only be presented in this, what I would consider to be an oversimplistic way. And in my view, of course, I, I am a mathematician, in my view, um, it doesn't, you know, totally, it, you know, it does maybe discredit... You know at, at our discipline, but I'm sure that there are plenty of others out there. Who, 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 in fact, almost certainly the majority who thinks that, that that's what makes it engaging. I mean, uh, I don't know, but for a subject like this, especially, I think it, it oversimplified and and kind of like trivialized, over trivialized the issues.
0: Yeah, Professor Fenton, as 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 I listened to, to 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 both of you talking there, I'm thinking, isn't it interesting? We're we're really on the subject of data and mathematics, analysis, statistics, and yet we keep coming back to the uh, psychological aspect of the way that things are being done. Okay, I had for many years a professional career Um, that happened to be within the Navy, but I'm going to say within that time, there were times most of it was to do with being very accurate when you were handling information and data there was no room for putting a spin on it you were interested in the facts and you were interested in the evidence that you'd got in front of you and i i find it deeply disturbing that we're now in this situation where we're dealing with the health of individuals and the public and yet we can't even get to the to the basic um, facts and the truth in the data because there is a spin being put on it and the BBC documentary for me the fact that it did not bring in other individuals to challenge views or put other information forward that was deliberate manipulation of the program presumably to help sell what is still the narrative that everybody must believe in what the government says about covid and the vaccinations. Am I am I being a bit simplistic here or as a a professional, I'm allowed to say as a professional myself, I just find it incredible that other people, other scientific qualified views are not allowed to be heard.
1: Well, no, because they they didn't give, they didn't give any of the hard data, did they? In in, even even with all its weaknesses that we've indicated, there's there's plenty of government data out there which should have been presented and would have actually, um, let's say, uh, put the a slightly different spin on the narrative that they were presenting, even with its, all its flaws. But they didn't, you know, they, they they didn't, as you said, like the MHRA and the UKHSA data, but they, of course, didn't present any of that.
0: No, it's incredible. I, I did a little bit. I couldn't resist doing a little bit of um, simplistic research for this uh, for this interview and I went just looking at what the definitions of mathematics and statistics were and of course there's a number of different sets when you go looking on the internet but one of them for mathematics it said the measurement properties relationships of quantities and sets using numbers and symbols establishing truth a study of assumptions and it was it I I focused in on that one because it was the only one of the definitions which actually brought truth into the the the, uh professional application of mathematics and i i thought that was very telling and it it resonated with me surely if you're to be doing good mathematics and statistical analysis on any subject but particularly i would have thought health you would be ultimately seeking truth but this doesn't appear to be the case with the BBC.
1: It, it doesn't, but, but actually, it's not, again, it's not, well, the BBC hasn't had a major role in this, but of course, you've got to then go back to the fact that it was mathematical models, you know, the the imperial model, and as we're also finding out, uh, modelling by a team at UCL, of which Hannah Fry was involved, which were effectively determining, which were... Um, exaggerating which with these simulation models, which were basically creating the narrative in support of lockdowns. Now, there's something very interesting that relates to this that was in the program, because Hannah Fry actually said that she'd been involved in some of the mathematical modeling, mathematical and statistical modeling, her words were, which helped us out of lockdown. Now, I was, I was intrigued by this for, for several reasons. I, I genuinely hadn't, hadn't been aware for involvement in that. I've actually since looked it up to to try and clarify exactly what it is. But it's interesting because suddenly, these mathematical modelers are saying that they they were involved in models which helped us out of lockdown, but suddenly, but nobody suddenly, everyone's forgotten that it was exactly the same models which led us into lockdown, right? And everybody, uh, people are now realizing the catastrophe of lockdown and the fact that mathematical modeling pushed us into that Right, those mathematical models, um, again, was, is another thing which is in the eyes of many of the public discredits mathematics. Because if they think, if math, if that's, you know, and it, it's so different, it's so far from what, you know, what, what you, Brian, have just defined, have just said as the, as the true, you know, true meaning of mathematics. Those models, if they'd have been, if they would have been doing real mathematics, they would have considered far more factors, they would have considered not just. The single objective of predicting how many hospitalizations and deaths, but they should have been considering all of the other potential uh, harms, you know, to society, uh, economic harms of the lockdowns and all of the other you know, measures that, uh, that that were brought in. They that should they should have been in there. You know, that sh- they should have all been a part of the model. And they should have done stuff which we do, which is to properly quantify the massive uncertainty about these things rather than make assertions which appear to be, you know, very specific predictions of numbers of deaths and, and hospitalizations. And the thing about, the, yeah, I mean, everything about this is, is, is so kind of weird because it turns out that the data that was used in certainly the UCL models that, that Hannah mentions were actually based on data that had been collected as part of a previous BBC documentary, which was this two, this weird 2018 contagion documentary, which Hannah Fry also fronted up, and which bizarrely seemed to predict everything that happened with COVID. It was a sort of a precursor predicted, and they had two. They had first they had an app there, which was a kind of like a contact tracing app, which they invited everyone in the public to download, and that gave them the data, and they and they asked people to to enter in you know information about how many people they saw on a given day and all that sort of thing. So they were able to use data, their researchers were able to use data from that app to kind of get a model for how people moved about, you know, within communities, right? So you've got this sort of the the basis for contact tracing, but here's the really interesting. They had another app which they introduced to the people of Hazelmere. Right. And the whole point of this, they put the, so this app was downloaded onto several hundred people in Hazelmere onto their phones with the idea that anybody who had that app was a simulation of a person who would be guaranteed to be infected if they got this virus, right? And patient zero in Hazelmere was was, was Hannah Fryer. So she went into Hazelmere, walking about town, going into a yoga class. And any people within, you know, sort of 20 meters of her, right, who who had the app were, were, were uh, in the simulation, therefore, Got, got, the, got the, not COVID. Got this virus. Okay, and by doing this, they were able to monitor how quickly the virus spread, right, and, and the way in which it spread between you know, within the community. And we know that that data, the data from that simulation, was actually used in the, in the subsequent modeling for COVID, right? And that data and, and all of the assumptions in those models. They had some very, you know, ridiculous assumptions. Again, the, the the notion that if you got the virus is deadly, right? And therefore, all you're, you're worried about is that anybody who got the virus was sort of almost certain to be hospitalised, and and after that, you know, likely to die. You had all of these massively exaggerated assumptions which went into those models. And so, you know, these mathematical models that we use. I mean, there's nothing wrong in these mathematical simulation models. I mean, the stuff that we do is, is you know, we do. Kind of you know mathematical simulation but we properly quantify all the causal factors and we try and take account of all of the um effects of of any decisions right but we put it in a strictly probabilistic context we say here you know we, we you know this might happen but here's the probability that's going to happen that was never presented like that in the modeling
0: uh. I'm looking at the clock and I'm going to because I'm yeah. utterly fanta- fascinated by by what you're saying. Professor Fenton, are you would you be happy just to stay with us till half past? Can you can you manage? Yeah. That? yeah. Oh, OK. We've hit the subject of probability and, and I find this an extremely interesting subject because there. have and I'm going to turn to Debbie. She'll she'll know where I'm going with this. We have seen so many times. Documents appearing, which are supposedly a forecast into the future of something. We then end up, we're living the future, and all of the things that were in the earlier study, pandemic study, have come to be. Now, this either says that you've got an amazing crystal ball and you're able to actually forecast the future or if you analyze it from a um, from probability it's simply it cannot be that so many very precise forecasts have come true unless it wasn't just a look at what might be in the future it was actually a plan and debbie i don't know whether you'd like to comment on we still got you debbie i think we might have lost her well that's a shame we'll we'll see whether she comes back in, in a minute um but um this Spars Pandemic 2018, um, you you probably missed a little bit there, I think, Debbie. But what I'm getting at is when we look at, at a document like the Spars Pandemic of 2018, and you say, how can it be possible that all of the things mentioned in that document came true? It's either a crystal ball or else you've got to say the probability of that happening is just off the scale. Um, you you were the the one that started to look at the spars pandemic and all its predictions. Do you want to just comment on that that briefly?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the spars pandemic twenty twenty five to twenty twenty eight was a John Hopkins futuristic scenario, which um, was started off with a coronavirus, um, and and it was in Saint Paul's in in the USA, um, and it goes through a month by month it's 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 a report it's a futuristic scenario but it's been it's written by somebody in 2030 looking back on what happened between 2025 and 2028 so it's a retrospective report on on the future event if you like and and this sparse pandemic 2025 to 2028 literally goes month by month so When we got our first case, I think it was March 2020, um, they started their pandemic scenario off. So you can literally go month by month and you can predict, and, and we've actually done this, haven't we, Brian, on UK Column? We've managed to be able to be ahead of the game always because we've been following the predictions that they've been using and the modeling that they were using within within this scenario so we we've we are now warning of antibiotic shortage um, antimicrobial resistance possibly neurological i mean i hope this is wrong but neurological serious adverse reactions in children this would be where we are looking in their plan if we're going to follow the plan as we have been so the fact that this is all written down and it's out there um is extraordinary and, and i think if i could ask professor fenton one one final question from me really was would be based on your data that you've analyzed and that the data that now you are in receipt of what would be your mathematical modeling for maybe predicting the future what do we have to look forward to based on what you're seeing, not what the government are telling us, but on what you're seeing?
1: Uh, that, that's quite a difficult question, because we've, we've, we we try to focus on quantifying the uncertainty about what is currently happening. right? We do do predictive models, OK? But I'm kind of like reluctant to do them in, in this area, right? But what we would certainly, I mean, Unfortunately, what would be what would come out of that, our modelling is that there would there there, there there is going to be a worrying worrying increase in serious adverse reactions from from the vaccine longer term. Yeah.
2: And Professor Fenton, could I could I just ask you as well? Because you know, looking looking forward and looking at the data that the government are bringing out, should we believe any of it?
1: Uh, well, I mean, you've got, as I say, you've got this this weird, you know, different agencies are giving different figures. So it's a question of, you know, of, of, you know which which bits of them you believe. I mean, we made a recommendation as a, when, after we saw the most recent, you know, the most recent ONS surveillance reports. I mean, I can't remember the exact words; I haven't got it in front of me. But we 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 said that anybody that this is now so fundamentally flawed, the, the data there, that anybody who makes any assessments of, of the vaccine efficacy or safety based on that data, or who has made them in the past, should, should basically, publicly, should, should withdraw that. But there shouldn't be any, and anybody who's made any should withdraw them because they, they are demonstrably um, unreliable. And, um, you, know, you know, that's the, that's the ONS, and, and they're, you know, they're considered to be the sort of the gold standard data and as you know brian was saying in the past they they have been they've they've been very good um but you have to you have to see you know that you know if you look they they i'm not suggesting they're doing this in bad faith right i mean to give the example with that particular why is that ons data so flawed in particular A well there's a you've got a bias in the which is not their fault in the in the in the sample they use, in which just happens to be everybody was in the 2011 census with a GP, registered with a GP in 2019, right? So it's already from the population of England, it already comes down to 39 million people rather than, you know, 50, 50 million or whatever, right? So you've already got that, that bias, right? But then when it comes to, for example, they claim, you know, they claim that no, we, we've always said that one of the reasons why their data is flawed on the vaccine efficacy of safety is that people who die shortly after that after vaccination or after a dose are classified as unvaccinated or if it's the second dose, they're classified as only one dose right and and we've demonstrated that that has happened they say, well no no that, 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 that's that's not the case because we're getting the data from GPS or whatever well no, the data they're getting in this case is is flawed right it might, they might I'm not suggesting they're manipulating it in any way right but they're not accepting possibility that their data they're getting is flawed when it clearly is when we've demonstrated mathematically that it is it can't be possible to have the, the to, to be to get the observed data they've got it that, that they've got right and we've shown all this without you know bayesian causal modeling it, it's it's indisputed that it's wrong so it's it's not a question of, of of everything they're saying is false but everything needs to be seen in a let's say a more causal context, right? I mean, we, right from the start, you know, what, where we differ from other sort of st- standard st- statisticians, we don't just do number crunching on the data that's given by governments, right? We, what we do is we look at explanations for p- potential biases, causal explanations, and uncertainty in the observed data. And we get, we fill in the missing bits with either, you know, domain knowledge or data from other sources. And that way, you get a more informed picture of what is, you know, what the the true the true state of affairs is.
0: Yeah, um, thank you very much for that. And uh, good good uh, question, Debbie. Thank you for bringing that in. I think my w- my last question for you would be, what what would you like to say to your professional colleagues who people are out there trained to an equivalent level as yourself Uh, they're living in this uh, very strange world at the moment what would your message be to them presumably to try and get them to pay attention to the fact that at least something is not right
1: you know something the what has frustrated me most about this is the um how academia and in particular you know people within my community of uh, of academics has responded to this it it is obvious you know some of the flaws in the data and its presentation are have been so obvious it doesn't actually need any 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 great intellect you know to do it so at least you know I would have expected more of my colleagues to have simply said well hang on a sec you know don't don't believe this data there are problems with this data but almost none you know none of them have i mean as i maybe indicated before, a small number of key, of quite prominent a- a- academics contact me privately to say they, they, un- they realize that, that, that there's a lot of, they, they, they realize that my analyses, our analyses, exposing some of these flaws is correct, but they can't say so publicly because of fear to their career. I mean, the problem is that academics um, have been, a, have actually been, huh, I guess I'll sound a disgrace during this, And uh, academics were actually a major factor in pushing governments into the extreme uh, restrictions and lockdowns. And of course, in that, I include very much, not just, I mean, you know, mathematicians, statisticians, of course, were, were, were quite prominent in that, unfortunately. I mean, academics, these are academics in general. I mean, not just mathematicians, but all academics who are promoting this kind of like, who promoted the fear narrative, the lockdown narrative. They didn't have to worry about the implications, the policies they pushed for. I mean, they basically had no skin in the game. and They had no understanding of the hardships that it was causing to sort of businesses and working class people. They a kind of, to be fair, priv- most of them, you can say they're a they privileged elite. You know, they've got most of their big homes and gardens. They could work from their you know, computers at home without fear of losing a single penny of income ever. And what's weird is that academics are the ones who, cl- these are the people who claim to be so progressive you know, in all other films, you know, they're looking after the work, you know, they're ones most concerned about impact on working class and, you know, and, uh, you know it's sort of ethnic communities who are also sort of badly affected by this, right? And yet they were the ones who were sort of leading the, you know, they should have been leading the charge to question what the government's data was telling us, right? And the narrative that was being spun, and they should have been leading the charge to pursue the truth especially you know, especially given that the policies infringed against the things they claimed to be so interested, civil liberties, working class, et cetera. And yet they've actually were the ones not only pushing those policies, but they were prominent in censoring any attempts to pursue the truth and close down any dissent against the policies. In fact, well, it's, it's, it's crazy, you know, the only public dissent that we ever really heard from academics was those academics who are actually demanding even harsher restrictions and I think in future years people will look on back on this time as one of total shame for academia and I'm almost you know ashamed to be a part of it in many respects.
0: Professor Fenton thank you thank you very much and um, it's been incredible you've ended on a very passionate note and I I think that's absolutely right but uh, we recognize and I'm sure our viewers and listeners will recognize that you've uh, had a lot of courage to stand up and speak out uh, because it's never difficult uh, it's never sorry it's never easy to challenge um, the uh, consensus within any organization or area whether it's academia or a university or any other um, big outfit so it's obviously been hard for you but unless people do speak out we're never going to understand the truth about what's happening I'm going to say we probably should end there. So thank you very much for joining us. Debbie, thank you very much as well. And particularly, a uh, thank you for organising our interview today. It's really excellent. Um, Professor Benton, I'd like to say, could we at some stage continue um, the dialogue? I know that I've got colleagues who'd like to talk to you in more detail about some of the specific statistics that were put forward what we saw on graphs at particular times for example and to have your professional input on that would be analysis and input would be really excellent but we yeah we must be in a very worrying place where we are having this discussion which is essentially saying the data that the government has used to lock us in our homes and to encourage us to get vaccines is subsequently proving to not be correct this is a very a very s- serious state of affairs and I think we've got more discussion to have on why this situation should have arisen what what's the driver but we'll have to leave that for another day so thank you very much for joining us and uh, debbie same to you and uh, we'll see when we can we can reconvene for we'll call it part two. Thank you very much.
2: Okay, thanks, bye.